0: love to pray for us in our time together before we get going, uh, so if you bow your heads with me. Uh, Father, thank you for a time to come together in worship and adoration of you. I pray that you would help us understand that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you are good, and that you keep your promises, you keep your covenant. Uh, Father, I pray you would be um, in the text today, that you'd be speaking through it, that you would be speaking through me as I preach your word uh, to your church, God. I pray that you would help me to get out of the way so that you would be seen clearly and accurately, uh, and I pray that you would open up our hearts to what you have to say to us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we are starting up with the book of Malachi, and uh, that means that we need to understand where we find ourselves um, in history, in scripture, and um, to start off with this, I want to uh, begin by saying that the book of Malachi is an address of Israel's apathetic relationship uh, with God. God's covenant people's relationship with him has become something that is either observed laxly or not at all. It is something that has been uh, central to the entire national development of Israel, but now in the time of Malachi, as we come to this book, uh, the country of Israel has uh, sort of fallen away. And for those of you who are keeping up on the timeline of the Bible, this is after the exile to Babylon. So if you read uh, through Daniel, that sort of chronicles that whole story of a nation that is in exile and how one man kind of reacts to that. And then um, sort of leading up through uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, that all leads up to it. If you read uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, those are sort of historical accounts of Israel's return to their own homeland after this time in exile. Um, But for our purposes today, Uh, Malachi is addressing the fact that Israel, in their worship, um, has become apathetic, and we see that in chapter 1, verses uh, 12, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 19, uh, that the altars are polluted, meaning that the place that worship is conducted for God um, is not up to the standard that he sets out, and it's also degraded in the priesthood and the offerings that they set forth. Um, In their covenant faithfulness, Israel has become apathetic, which is symptomatic and exemplified in their marital relationships and relationships with each other. That's in the second chapter, verses 10 through 12 of Malachi. Um, and then also in their national obedience and the maintenance of the temple and their tithes and offerings to God. Um, they become apathetic there as well, which is in chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. And that is sort of the broad, overarching idea that Malachi is addressing. Now, the context of Malachi, like I said, finds itself after the exile with a nation that is estranged from their home. And what I mean by saying they're estranged from their home is Malachi is writing this about 100 years after Israel came back from its 70-year exile or captivity um, under the nation of Babylon. So they have been under a foreign ruler, a foreign power, and now they are beginning to assume some form of autonomy as they move back into this homeland that God has promised them. But in that time, in that exile of Babylon, we come to find a people in Malachi that have not necessarily been changed by the discipline that the Lord lays out for them um, in that time that he set apart. Not only are they estranged from their home, they are also unconvinced of their God. They are unconvinced of the covenant promises that God made to their forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Malachi was written after this captivity, and now that they have come home, they are finding that um, their sins, their disobedience has kind of come home to roost. It's not the magnificent kingdom that they saw under David and Solomon. The temple is in disrepair, even though it has been reassembled. And because of their laxity and their observation um, of the worship of God, God has something to say to them. So um, I think the best place to go from here would be to just get into the text and to open this up. So if you would stand with me, um, it's our custom to do that out of uh, reverence for God's word here at Maranatha. And if you'll meet me in Malachi chapter 1, Uh, We're going to be in verses 1 through 5 today, and it reads, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we are getting into this book of Malachi, I want us to understand that there is a messianic hope even for people that have been apathetic, even for people that are beginning to let uh, the mundane, everyday practices of worship slip from their grasp. And these hopes are glory for God that he would be recognized as the sovereign Lord of the universe, as a God that keeps his covenant, uh, the purification for the faithful people that they would see in doctrine and practice a renewed vitality and vigor and worship for the Lord, and then also justice for the oppressed as God applies his kingdom to the world. Now the purpose that Malachi is called to is to call Israel, first the priests and then the general population, back to right worship and right understanding and right uh, practice of the things that God calls them to. Now just as God made covenant with their forefather Abraham, he also makes covenant with them to preserve them, to give them a descendancy, and to eventually bless all nations through them. That is the hope of the gospel that we read through in John for 72 weeks. And in this call and response sort of conversation that God has with the people of Israel, he addresses all kinds of topics. He, as we just read, asserts that he has this love for them, and then Israel sort of questions back, how have you loved us? And God provides a final answer and a response to that rebuttal that Israel has for him. Uh, Later on in the sermon series, we're going to see how Israel has sinned against God in their worship of him, how Israel has sinned against one another in their faithlessness, uh, both in their marriage and then also in their idolatry going to see how Israel has implied that God is unjust, that he is in a dereliction of duty. And they ask, how could they ever return to a God that they simply aren't convinced of, that they're apathetic towards? And then finally, how Israel has accused God of not just being um, absent from his duty and applying justice, but has neglected it entirely. So it's this difficult thing that Malachi is getting into. And it's no wonder that in some interpretations of the Bible, in some translations, that first verse when it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi is instead translated, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And that idea comes from this fact that sometimes God has something to say that we don't necessarily want to hear. It can be hard to get to. And I want you guys to keep this in mind as I'm getting into what we're talking about today because it's no easy task to discuss the love of God for some people and his antagonism towards the wicked. It's no easy thing to hear about how God has chosen to love some people but has chosen to destroy others. And that comes with the prophetic office. Because when we think of prophecy in our modern day, when we think of prophecy as we understand it, we can think of it as this prediction of the future. And that is partly what prophecy does. It is laying out for the people what the future plan of God will be. Because if his speaking is his doing and he's true to what he says, God saying that I will do this, whether it is past, present, or future, is as good as if it's already happened, God saying that I will redeem Israel is not something that he plans to do, but is something that he is and will be doing. God is someone who is holy and just and righteous, and who keeps the covenant that he makes, is not going to break his word about something that he lays out in the future. And that part of the prophetic office of speaking to something that is yet to happen is called foretelling. And there are examples of this as we get through it in uh, chapter 4, as we're talking about the return of the Lord, as we're talking about the day of the Lord, as we're talking about the prophet that will come and display fully and accurately uh, what it is that God is doing among his people. More to the point, however, especially for Malachi, there is this idea of forthtelling. So there's foretelling, which is in the future, and then there is forthtelling, which is speaking forth into a context as they are currently living in it. It's basically calling Israel out on the way that they are falling short of the promises that they made to God. Now, this can be some of the harder things to hear because it's easy to hear that, oh, God will do this one day. God will plan on having this come about, which we can trust and have faith in. But sometimes, as the people who are being spoken against, whose foretelling strikes at the heart of our sins and our inadequacies, of our lack of worship for God, it can be difficult to hear that. So as God calls people out on the lack of reverence or the lack of worship or the informality of the worship that they are offering to him, it can be difficult to hear. In Malachi verses 2 through 3, it reads, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is Esau not Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the biblical narrative in Genesis, uh, Jacob and Esau were the children of Isaac, this child of covenant promise that God gave to Sarah and Abraham, even though they were at such an age that having children should have been impossible for them. Isaac was this miraculous sign of a covenant that was being fulfilled, that God was going to build a childless couple at the age of 90 into a nation. That they were going to have a descendancy that came from themselves, Not an adopted nation, not a household manager that would be in charge of their facilities, but a true heir that would inherit all the promises and blessings of God that were given to Abraham. Now Jacob and Esau were brothers, but Esau was Jacob's older brother. And in the context of the time, that meant that it was his to inherit everything that God had promised. That was the property, that was the promise, that was the blessing, that was everything that God gave to Isaac, it should have gone to Esau but contrary to custom, Jacob inherited the blessings promised to Abraham. And why is that? We have two options. The first one is that God is the sovereign Lord of the universe who can act regardless of what that custom is at the time, who can act regardless of what should be physically possible in the example of Isaac for Abraham and Sarah, or... We can believe that God is a God of damage control whose plans were subverted by some goat hair and some soup. We can believe that God is so impotent in his own creation that he cannot guarantee the plan of salvation through the family line that he originally intended. Because if God is not sovereign to choose Jacob, then Jacob got one over on God. And this can be hard to hear. We can hear that Jacob was passed over from what was right from a customary perspective and it was given to Jacob. We can hear that Esau was passed over for Jacob and say that doesn't sound fair, that doesn't sound right and that is a huge component of what I want to talk about today is the justice and the holiness of God not just in choosing Jacob but in destroying Esau because we can preach this happy-go-lucky version where only Jacob was chosen and only Jacob was blessed and then Esau was forgotten about but if we read through the book of Obadiah we can understand that this is not the case. That God intentionally sought out and destroyed Esau and his heritage, the Edomites. This nation of Edom. And it can be easy to preach this happy-go-lucky pie in the sky where God only says that I am choosing some people while neglecting the fact that he has wrath and punishment that is stored up for sin. It can be easy to pass over the wrath of God towards sin to only talk about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that is the glory of the gospel. That is what we should be excited about. That is what brings us here today. But we would not be doing our due diligence if we did not preach that God is holy and does not abide sin. So as we're getting into this idea of God choosing Jacob and passing over and destroying Esau, I want us to understand that we're talking about this idea of God's sovereign choice in salvation. We're talking about God's sovereign choice in who he keeps his promise to. And the doctrine of predestination can be something that seems cruel or needlessly spiteful without a broader understanding of two critical elements of the Christian theology. The first one is our theology proper. It is what do we believe about God and his character and his attributes? And the second piece is what do we believe about our anthropology? How do we understand what man's place and purpose and character is here on earth under Adam, under sin, as people who are fallen? So that's what I want to talk about today because it changes this idea of God choosing someone for salvation while not choosing others and executing his wrath on sin from something that can seem needlessly spiteful to the greatest act of grace that has ever been perpetrated. Because God from time immemorial has known whom belongs to him. God from time immemorial has been aware of the fact that he will save because his word does not go out and return void. Again, verses three through four. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build up, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country. Again, if you need a refresher on this, read Obadiah. And as I'm going through all of these doctrines and this idea of how we process um, sort of what man's place is in the universe, I want us to understand that if God was not sovereign in executing his covenant, we would have an apathetic God. We would have a God that is unconcerned and unconvinced that humanity was worth his time. And this character trait that we apply to man that is subject to God is this idea of total depravity. It is this idea that in all of our ways we are sinful, but I think this doctrine can be characterized as such a radical, extreme um, exaggeration of what it actually is that it can turn some people off. So what I want to clarify from the outset is that we are not all ultimately as bad as we could possibly be. We are not all innately, completely ignorant of God. Romans 2.15 refutes that. I can also say that we are not inherently disgusted by, by virtue. Romans 5.7 refutes that. We are not some creature of darkness that recoils at the light, that hisses at the presented cross like Dracula in Bram Stoker's classic novel. But I can say and I can assert that we are inherently corrupted in everything that we do. I can assert that we are not fully able to do anything for the glory of God on our own. And you see that in John 5.42. You see that in Romans 7.18, 23, uh, 8.7. You also see that in Ephesians 4.18, 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 4, Titus 1.15, Hebrews 3.12. I would encourage you guys, if you have the time at some point this week, and I hope you do, to go back and understand this idea that we are a corrupted people. We are not what we were meant to be in Eden. We have fallen. And when we think of the holiness of God, it is not that um, Adolf Hitler and Pharaoh are on one side of the scale and then Mother Teresa and Gandhi are at the other side, and then just like a little bit past that is Jesus. It's not this sliding scale of morality. What happens is that we are on a completely different playing field from where God is. So if you take that scale off the wall that we're looking at and you move it down, on a completely other tier is the holiness that God expects. It is the difference between a six-year-old t-ball team and the Chicago White Sox. (laughs) There is no comparison between what is expected from the people of God and what God is himself. God's standard for man is his perfect character, is his perfect holiness that we fall short of. So what is the character of God? I'm not going to be able to build that out for you entirely today in 40 minutes. It's not going to work. But what we will assert for our purposes here today is that first, God is holy, which means that he is set apart from the rest of creation. And this happens in two ways. It's by his majestic attributes, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his love, his grace, his mercy, all of these things that we can say fully define who God is. And you can read about this idea of his majesty in Exodus 15, 11, 1 Samuel 2, 2, Isaiah 57, 15, Hosea eleven nine. Again, take the time. It's worth it. Understand what the character of God is. So he's holy in his majestic attributes and then also in his ethical perfection in the sense that he always does the right thing all the time, and never lets that opportunity pass by him. Not just to do the right thing at the right time, but to never not do the thing that was right at the appropriate time. Job 34.10, Habakkuk one thirteen. So his holiness is what sets him apart. His justice is how his holiness applies to us. So God is just, which for our purposes means conforming to a law or a standard, And we see that in that the law that God observes is the perfection that is mandated by his own nature. If he did not fulfill this, he would be less than God and undeserving of worship. If he did not completely, perfectly conform to the standard that is his own holiness, he would not be worthy of worship. Ezra 9.15, Nehemiah 9.8, Psalm 119, verse 137, Jeremiah 12.1, Daniel 9.14, John 17.25, 2 Timothy 4.8, so on and so forth. And by conforming to that law, to that holiness that is mandated by his nature, God punishes sin and rewards righteousness. Second Chronicles 6.15, Psalm 58.11, Romans 2.7, Hebrews 11.26. Again, all of that, if you have the time, please go look it up, go read it. Don't take my word for it, go to scripture. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God is righteous and holy and just and that we are sinful? It means that God has a sovereign will in the redemption of man. It means that God in his love has compassion on his creation. It means that God in his mercy is willing to forgive sin and that God in his holiness and perfection is able to atone for sin. If God was not any one of those things, the gospel wouldn't work. It wouldn't add up. It would not square. If God expected holiness but was not holy. He could not make the sacrifice that was Christ on the cross and we would be left in our sin. If God was not just, there would be no standard to be held to. So we can say that God is glorified in the redemption of man. That as verse 5 says, our own eyes will see this and we shall say that great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel, not just for the love that he shows Jacob, but for the justice that he shows Esau. Because God is also righteous and also much to be praised in the punishment of sin. Because God in his holiness will not abide sin and his justice will not allow it to go unpunished and his omniscience will not let it go unnoticed. This is not the kind of thing where you have a paper that's due for a professor at 8 in the morning, but you know, it's study hall first period, and he doesn't check his email box, so you can send it in at 9 and still get full credit. God is not some bumbling judge that is barely aware of what's going on and can be slipped in and deceived and fooled. He is the all-knowing God of the universe. You can't slide one past him. So how do we understand that? How do we understand that God is not being spiteful? How do we understand that God is not being cruel or derivative or that he's just playing favorites? And the answer to this is, is that while we might think we are entitled to redemption, we are more so entitled to punishment. Jonathan Edwards, in his classic sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, asserts that God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep the unredeemed person out of hell. The way that he says it is that a man is walking over a rotting covering and below it is the pit of hell that could fall through at any moment. It is not that we are so close to salvation that God sees through time and chooses us because we almost got there and he decides to save us and he bridges the rest of the gap. It's that we were so dead in our sin that if God did not intervene sovereignly through space and time and history and sin and death that we would still be there today. We are not clamoring on to the side of a boat trying to get into safety. We are dead at the bottom of the ocean. There is no world in which a sinful human man is able to attain to the righteousness of God. Like I said, he is on a wholly different level from us because he is holy. And what I want to appoint to you guys today as the main thrust of this is that both in the punishment of sin and in the redemption of sinners, God is much to be praised. Because if he did not punish sin, then every cruel, hateful, spiteful thing that has ever been perpetrated in the history of humanity will go for unanswered. There is no judge. It doesn't matter what you get here because eternally it will not matter. But then conversely, God is much to be praised because he does redeem some. That any would be able to enjoy his presence forever and to understand what it means to be fully fulfilled in the presence of their creator. So whatever we see, whatever we say, whatever we understand about God, let us not say that he is not holy or that he is not just. Because the people of Israel here in Malachi are apathetic towards their worship, but God is not apathetic about his holiness. So we conform to God, God does not conform to us. We are drawn to him by grace. And the answer as to why God does this is entirely up to him. I cannot speculate as to why some are saved and some are not. I wish that I did. I wish that I knew why when I'm witnessing to a friend or a colleague or a coworker or whatever else and they don't understand it. I couldn't tell you why that is. That's going to be between me and the Lord at the end of time. But what I do know is that I am not the one who ultimately bears the burden for their salvation. If I did, I would be crushed under it. Romans 9:22 and 23 says that, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So again, I want to assert that some people might find it easy to sidestep the doctrine of predestination, that God has a choice in his redemption by saying that God has saw through time and because of the actions of some, he has destined them for life with him. That is just works salvation by another name. That is works salvation on layaway. But then what kind of comfort do we get from a sovereign God that keeps his covenants, that is holy, that is just, and cares about the affairs of history? That cares... About the children of men. Who is God that He is mindful of us? The first thing, like I said before, is that others do not bear the burden for our shortcomings. If I am sharing the gospel with an unconverted Jeff Beisel and he does not accept the gospel and does not go on to plant Maranatha and start a church, that is not on me. We are called to be faithful, we are called to do everything we can, we are called to preach the gospel until we are blue in the face or the people that we are preaching to don't listen anymore. There's a story in Acts about how he was preaching and he was going late one night and they were on this second story balcony and this younger person was sitting sort of in the window and Paul literally preached him to death because he kept going until he fell asleep and fell off and they raised him back to life and it was fine. (laughs) But the responsibility still falls to us to preach. (laughs) It doesn't matter what they do because that ultimately is in the hands of God. We are also if God is sovereign, keeps his covenant, and is involved in the affairs of the world, we are not wholly subject to the malevolent will of others. Satan trying to spike the wheel of the church has no merit on the person that treads the path that God sets out for them. We cannot be sidelined, we cannot be sidetracked, we cannot be drawn off of our purpose because ultimately the responsibility to send and to save lies with God. So we can have comfort In our witness, we can have comfort. On mission, we can have comfort as we raise our children and our families and disciple others to know that God is faithful to do what he is going to do. He promised Abraham that he would keep his covenant, that he would bless him, that he would build a nation out of him, that the nations would be blessed through him. And that is true and accurate in the testimony that we receive here in Malachi and also in the New Testament about Jesus Christ. This is what all of it is looking forward to. The messianic hope that we see in Malachi that Israel will return in faithfulness is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And what all of this means is that we are not adrift in the sandbox of an apathetic God. We are not toys that were picked up to be played with for a while and then left on our own to figure it out. We are intimately and carefully involved in the thoughts and cares of the God of the universe. There is nowhere that we can go that is outside of his purview. There is no thing that we can do that is unexpected to him. And more so, there is nothing that we have done that cannot be overcome in Christ, which is on offer to us all. So as we go from here, what do we understand about the covenant God of Israel? That he loves us. That he protects his people. And that he executes justice. Take away any of those things, and he is not the God of Scripture. Would you bear with me? Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for a chance to be able to speak about how you do care for us, about how you are there for us, about how you are not apathetic and unconvinced, but that it is for you to save. Father, I pray that as we go from here, we would rest in that, we would find assurance in that, and as we talk this through, we would begin to understand more of who you are and more of what that means for us. In Jesus' name, amen.